If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to me, turn with me, excuse me, turn with me to Job chapter 41. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. These words may sound strange to some of the ears here this morning. Um, this is a passage of Job that doesn't often get preached, and um, it goes right along, though, so well with everything that we've been looking at in Job last week, and... Um, and God has just put this on my heart, so we're going we're gonna to finish this passage this morning and finish this portion of it, and I think that you'll be blessed by what Job has to teach us here this morning. Chapter 41 from the book of Job, we're going to read, oh, let's do the first 11 verses. First 11 verses. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with Fishing spears, uh, lay your hands on him, and you'll remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come this morning, uh, these words from the book of Job are somewhat un unfamiliar in, in our ears, at least at some level. They speak of, a, of, a, of an animal, of a serpent, of a mystical creature that is large and unruly and and it sounds like he's uncontrollable, Father. Both of these, the behemoth and the leviathan, point to something much greater, though. A work that you're doing, a work that we are dealing with every day in this world. And, Father, as we seek more knowledge of who you are from last week to know who we are and for this week to know the world in which we live, I just pray that you open the eyes of your people, that you would use the work of your Holy Spirit and only the way that he is meant to be used among us, to enlighten us, to bring to our hearts the understanding of these words and apply them to our lives so that we are much changed people. Father, I pray that you uh, go past my simple speech this morning and speak directly to the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Welcome. Thanks for coming this morning. Job chapter 41 Actually, this passage begins with where we left off last week in Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 15. He begins to talk about the behemoth, and then he spills a ton of ink here in Job 41, 36 verses about Leviathan. And as I said to you last week, I will say again this week, it is, was on my heart to begin to preach the book of Ephesians for Park Bible Baptist Church. Uh, because that book is so symmetrical and it has uh, just been impressed upon my heart through my prayer life of what the Lord's been doing, that we need that doctrine and we need those reasonable standards that God calls us to as the church. 
But it's that first line that got me in Ephesians 1.1. Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And it is in the words, the will of God, that I got stuck. I said, oh my goodness, I could spend the rest of my life just talking about those few words. And in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, which is a very special chapter of the Bible, it is, it is along with Romans, some of the summit of the summit of the highest of the doctrines that the Lord has given the church and the truths that we have of the salvation that he has given us. So through that passage, we see that word will again and again. So I wanted to move back from that and look at these two weeks just about the knowledge of God because it is in the knowing of God we know who we are. And last week, I hope if you didn't see it, I hope you caught it on live stream. I finally got the sermon up late this week, and it's there if you'd like to watch it. Through the knowledge of God, we know who we are. And through the knowledge of God, we know who we rightly are. Job is probably one of the best examples of that, really. He says in chapter 26, verses 1 through 7, you don't have to turn there. This is kind of antidotal. But he says, I have not lost my integrity. You know, up until that point, Job's three friends... They had needled him. They said, Job, you've had to do something wrong for God to do this to you. There is not something that did not happen that he didn't see. What have you done, brother? What has sin have you sinned to cause this wickedness to come on your life? And, of course, Job remained, and it's the, the book of Job begins with God even saying that Job is an upright man. In fact, there's really none like him on earth, and it sets forth a Uh, A man who is pietistic, who even sacrifices for his children in case they are creating some kind of sin in their life that they don't know about. So up until that point, Job answers each friend individually. But it's in there in the chapter 27 in verse 5. He says, I have not lost my integrity. Verse 6 says, my conscience does not convict me. And you see, it goes to the plural there. So he begins... He quits talking to each friend individually, and he makes more of a statement to all of them and even to all of us, and that is that we can understand the world in which we live in such a way that even if evil comes, and evil will come if you've lived long enough, I heard Miss Sally say it this morning, it's not easy getting old, is it? Evil does come. It's not for sissies, I think she said. Yeah, it's not for punks, is it? Getting old's real. Evil will come in your life, whether it's in the form of sickness and death and disease and all the things around us. But I'll have you know, Job held on to his integrity because he knew who God was. And that's the key right there. If you know who God is, you know who you are. And therefore, you know reality, that evil exists in this world. So the knowledge of God leads to a knowledge of ourselves But it also leads, as we'll focus on just briefly this morning, a knowledge of this world. And one cannot put those two together without including evil. And indeed, that's what the 42nd chapter is going to point to this morning. So we come to this portion in Job, and it's, as I said, it's a very unique portion. And I usually try to grab several sermons of whatever I'm preaching on. But whenever I get out of a book and go to kind of a short series like this, I don't do it as much. And there's not very many sermons on this specific passage, but most of them are on the sovereignty of God. 
So just a brief review, you remember that Job had opened his mouth and was asking God questions about how things work. And this was, again, as I said earlier, this was going to, this understanding of, of God that Job's giving us, even in this difficult passage this morning, is God's truth to us about evil and about the world in which we live. In 40, we had jo- the truth about who Job was and who we are. So well, let's just look at that just for a moment. You remember that Job had opened his mouth and was, making, uh, was asking God questions about how things work. You know, and it's a lot like uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook or any type of social media. Everyone seems to have an opinion, don't they? They, <laughs> And everyone wants to share their opinion, bless their little old hearts. And that's good for this world at some level. But uh, Job was dealing with God here. He begins to question God about things that God is putting Job through. God giving Job this suffering and to the extent that he had really done nothing he thought to deserve the suffering. He was letting God know that, not only his friends, but he was questioning God. And see, what, what Job was doing, and we kind of highlighted this last week, is, and through prayer meeting, and I would invite you all to prayer meeting on the Wednesday nights, we've looked at this specifically, is that when we see, our place in a pla- uh, see ourselves in a place in this world, we often, instead of going directly to God in prayer and to God's word, we phone a friend. We, well, we text a friend today, don't we? We, get, we tend to try to get our problems resolved by committee. We want to know what our friend thinks about this or that when we should go to God first. But we can't question God, and that's where Job was. He was questioning God. See, he's seen all the suffering around him as well, and he saw all the evil around him, and the other people were not suffering who were truly doing evil, and he wanted God to answer that question. Listen, I'm a good man and I'm suffering. Why are these who are committing obvious evils not suffering as I am? That's a good question for today, isn't it? When we look around in our own culture, that's a really good question. And Job gets a really good answer because God is in control. God is sovereign. And all you have to do is just turn with me back to chapter 38 and just look at the first few verses here. Uh, as part of a review this morning, then the Lord answered Job, verse 1, out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job, and I'm going to question you, and you let me know the answers to my questions. And then God turns to creation. God's majesty is seen in the creation all around us. Psalms 19 says, It speaks day unto day, it utters speech. So God turns for testimony to come from that which cannot speak like man does, but speaks volumes about who God is, right? The, the creation all around us. Verse 4 says this, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Tell me if you have understanding about these things. Who determined its measurements? And surely you know. And I, I like these passages because when I begin to fathom about what it would take to hang the, to hang the earth out in the universe on basically nothing, it, it just stretches my logical processing mind to no end to begin to think about what is it that exists that makes that happen. God goes on, who stretched out a line upon it, who's measured it, who set it just perfectly, on what were its bases sunk, who laid the cornerstone, when the morning stars sing together, Job, and all the sons God shouted for joy, who was there, who set the boundary for the sea, who has done these things, Job, and as we see Job's answer to these things, Job can't answer any of these things, neither can we. 
So, of course, the answer from Job to God is a resounding no. Job was immediately in over his head. He was way above his pay grade, and he knew to be silent. See, Job was a man, and God is not. And that's the point we made. That that is the point God is making to Job and to us this morning. And you remember the central point of last week, that none can have mastery over the thing more than the creator of the thing. God had created the heavens and the earth, and he knew explicitly every minute detail, every atom, every molecule. He knows and understands. We can only take it apart from our perspective and look backwards towards it. As creator of everything that exists, God has sovereign control over his creation and even the evil it commits. That's the hard part this morning. We're going to add the world this morning, so we, we can't add the world and just see it as a false place. That'll, that'll give us a false hope, right? Job didn't have a false hope. That's how he lived in a world where he suffered so much as he understood that was God was in total control, even of the evil that his friends and he would commit. And so he looks at the creation of the earth and asks Job, and considering the grandeur of all creation, Job can absolutely say nothing. He has no right, no position to speak, but the Lord's not finished here because there were greater questions yet for Job to come because God was making a greater point about this creation, about how things truly are, who a man truly is before God. And we studied beginning at chapter 40 of verses uh, of the book of Job, verses 1 through 5. And Job begins to answer here, and he says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God... Let him answer it. So God is basically saying to Job, you are the fault finder. You are, and remember that word means corrector. Job was standing in the place where he thought he could correct God. And you remember he said, we can't do that. He is the creator of everything. He is the one that corrects us. We can't correct him. And it's only the fool that would argue with God. Fool says in his heart, there is no God. He just flat denies in his atheism that God is created and that God has power over that creation so job goes silent god takes the conversation to the next level and asks job to contend with the question even greater than creation evil in verses 10 through 14 he queries job and i'll just read those for you again he says to job adorn yourself with majesty and dignity clothe yourself with glory and splendor pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then, then, Jan, Job, and just at that moment, whenever you can solve the problem of evil in the world, I will say that your right hand is sufficient to save you. Well, ultimately, you know, that's a foolish, futile, foolish goal. Now, the more we think about evil honestly and from the perspective that we need to, the more we understand we cannot control evil in this world. Without faith, man is destitute and helpless against the evil in this world. The question of evil is a question we all have, right? Why does, it, why does evil exist? You ever heard your non-Christian friends ask you that? They do. They consider it all the time. And to get to the bottom of that is a little beyond the scope of this morning. That would take many sermons. But we're going to look and address this morning how God uses evil to show us who he is and the world around us. 
In other words, we can rightly understand with Job the world in which we live once we understand who God is, who we are, and our surroundings. This is probably the greatest argument that the atheist can give a Christian. They'll say these two things, and it leads to the third proposition. Is God not powerful enough? Of course, God claims to be all-powerful in Scripture. Or is God not good enough because he allows evil? And the proposition that would flow from that, if he's not powerful, he's either not powerful enough or not good enough, or he would end all evil. But I want to suggest to you something this morning much different, because we know God's powerful enough, right? And we know that God is good enough. He sent his son to die for us. That's not a besetting question to us this morning. Yet we want to know what God is teaching us about who we are before him and what it has to do with evil. I mean, he's already queried Job about creation. Job had no answer. The God asked Job to consider evil, and if he could rightly judge evil, that he could save himself. But the answer to the both of those questions is emphatically no from Job, and it's emphatically no from us. So we have somewhat of a dilemma here. A dilemma is a difficult choice between two things. If God is powerful enough and he is good enough and evil is evil, it's yucky stuff, right? Why doesn't he get rid of it? Is God merely pushing Job over the edge? Or does evil have a special purpose in the place? Is he pressing Job to despair about evil with these questions and us at the same breath? Because in this next session, God, uh, this, this section that we read this morning, God leaves no doubt about man's total inability regarding evil in the illustration of behemoth and leviathan. And this does make us ask why. Why does evil exist and why does it have to exist? And again, I say that would take many sermons to, to, to uncover that goal, but that's not ours. Our goal is to understand the world in which we live and how evil is addressed in it. So let's look at today's passage just momentarily and marvel at those beasts for just a moment. And we begin in verse uh, 15 of chapter 40 and just read a few of those words. We don't need to read all this because very quickly you get the idea that these are two very special animals uh, given to us as illustrations here in Scripture. Uh, The writer begins in verse 15, Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. In other words, God created behemoth. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his, his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of brawn. His limbs like bars of iron. This is a marvelous beast, isn't it? A beast like we may not know in this place. And then God gives us some hints in this passage of Scripture that let us know that he's talking about something much greater here. He's making a a a typological fact that this beast stands for something much greater. Verse 19 helps us with that. He says, He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. In other words, what God is saying is that God created this specific beast. He created this specific beast. He was the first of the works of God, and only God can bring a sword upon this beast. And then as we move to the 41st chapter, we begin to see the Leviathan. We read those passage just a little bit from you this mor- for you this morning about this beast, the Leviathan. And we marvel at these beasts, the behemoth and the Leviathan. What are they? What do they represent in Scripture? What are they at this part in the narrative of Job? And what is this passage teaching us 
about evil, about the world we live in. As we do, let's ask, we ask those questions this morning, let's keep in mind our goal propositions. And that is that in knowing God and knowing what he's teaching through these passages, we know who we are. Remember we said that that's the main struggle of man, is to know who he truly is. Aristotle uh, struggled with this some 350 years before Jesus came, Augustine some 350 years after Christ came. And you remember he said, uh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And then Calvin, obviously Calvin carries it forward in the 16th century and says, man cannot truly know himself until man truly knows God, and man cannot truly know God until he truly knows himself. And even Job is struggling with these very same issues. So in knowing God, we know who we are. We can begin to grapple with those big things, uh, the big questions of life, right? Like, who am I? Why am I here? And what is my purpose? But this week, knowing God lets us know our world. Why evil? Why does it look and act like it does? And the truth is contained in understanding, I tell you, these beasts this morning and what they represent. And I have just five points I want to make. And, you know, if they only take a half hour each, we'll, we'll be done in time for the Hebrew tonight. Um, listen to these points. The enormity of evil, the necessity of evil, the truth about evil, the defeat of evil, and the end of evil. Enormity, necessity, truth, defeat, and end of evil. Because these beasts point us to how God is going to and how God has already worked out evil out of the world. Without faith in God, man has no hope in a world where evil exists. We need God's intervention in this world. That is to say that evil is beyond man's ability, and we intimately know that. And God is pressing the enormity of that in these verses about behemoth and leviathan just for that reason he's not trying to exasperate us he's not trying to exasperate job so that we would give up all hope because if we did not have the hope of the gospel we would give up and if we wiped evil off the map tomorrow we'd never search for god so in some way god is saying that the evil that exists and the need that we have and the the victory that he's given us all point us to the glory and the sovereignty, and I love that song, the majesty of who God is. And I want you to think about it for just a moment because I told you earlier that it is straight through every life that's sitting here today, and it is of every life of every civilization since the creation of man. And that is that cycle that we knew that there was a good creation and there's been a fall, and we know that we're part of that, yet we long for salvation. Remember, did you ever watch, uh, what's up, I, I, just thinking off my cuff here a little bit, a, a popular uh, a cop show today, CSI, right? C, Crime C Investigation. What happens with every CSI? You guys watch that? Every one of them, something, you know, some, something good is marred, something bad has happened, there's an antagonist that has done this bad, and everybody is waiting for the good to come in at the end, and they always get their man, don't they? And if they don't, we long for what ought to happen. Do you see that? It's a very fabric of our lives. So he's not trying to exasperate Job with this truth, but just the opposite. When we truly understand evil, we truly understand not only our need for God, but the glory of God. I want to <clears throat> I would say not only the enormity in view here in this illustration, but the scope of evil, because it's everywhere present. It's massive in scope in all of civilization. And that's what he's saying here. Behemoth and 
He's a magnificent land animal. If you read these verses and study the Hebrew here a little bit, uh, you, you, you see something, I think, that is fantastic. You know, we, we look at huge animals and different things in our movies and, and uh, the different entertainment that we watch today, and we always see things like this. This is not by mistake that God uses drama and myth in the narrative of Scripture to help us see who he is as he paints these animals as big and magnificent as a land animal behemoth was and he had enormous appetite and he was unequaled strength and he moves at will where he wants on land and does what he pleases and there's 10 verses about this animal his appetites his his uh, abilities and his and man's inability to actually tame him and then second we move to leviathan and there's even more verses about leviathan so leviathan's even bigger he's even more dangerous he's even more Formidable. He cannot be overtaken. We read in this text, and in fact, that the text gives us 36 verses is something that all of chapter 41 points us to who this animal is and what God is trying to illustrate for Job and who this animal is. So let's look at Leviathan just a little bit bigger. He's bigger than Behemoth. He's more ferocious than Behemoth. He's more dangerous, more powerful. And if Behemoth is untamable and can do what he pleases, how much more Leviathan to rule and reign in terror of men? The key verses throughout both of these narratives, these descriptive passages of these animals, are telling us that the picture Scripture is painting is pointing to a much greater truth, as I said. Leviathan, more than behemoth, but both are given to suggest range, enormity. R.C. Sproul writes in the Reformation Study Bible about these verses. He says this, The monsters in these verses, behemoth and leviathan, probably represent forces of evil that God can control, but before which Job is helpless. God can control these animals, but man cannot. As to whether these are real or mythical, it seems best to regard them as hyperbolized portraits of something real in the natural realm. However, they also function in ancient Near Eastern culture and context as symbols of chaos, death, and evil, and that's the picture I get, isn't it? When you just kind of naturally read this, there's no control over these animals, and they would just go and do what they want. The power of these animals has sinister and dangerous overtones. If Job cannot control these animals, how can he grapple with the mysterious powers of evil that they ultimately represent? And that's from R.C. Sproul. But Behemoth and Leviathan indeed point to a type within Scripture that is familiar, an animal or a being that has in every civilization of man that has in every been uh, has ever has forever been and forever will be. Who is that? What do these remarkable creatures represent? Well, this passage itself, as I said earlier, begins to describe what these animals truly represent. You see it there in 4019. At first, he was uh, the first works of God. In other words, in the order of creation, this behemoth and this uh, leviathan were created. And then you jump ahead to chapter 41, verses 9 and 10. And behold, the hope of man is false in front of this animal. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one so fierce that dares to stir him up. Who then is it who can stand before me who has first given to me that I should repay him? What under, whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. Only God has control over these animals. Man cannot defeat this animal, this representation of this fierceness. And the hope of man is ultimately false. But Job 41, verses 18 through 21, begin to open it up even more. Read it there with me in the scripture. 
picture this in your mind. And this is how this is how mythology works. This is how drama works. And this is how God works in us. And this is why it works in all of culture since the beginning of time. These stories about these dangerous animals, this antagonist in our lives, this evil that comes within that we need somebody greater than us to overcome. Listen to the description words. Verse 18, chapter 41. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire that leap forth. He's a fire-breathing dragon. Out of his nostrils comes smoke, a boiling pot, and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. There we get a new description of this animal. He's a dangerous animal who is... Uh, like a dragon, he's a fire-breathing dragon. Why this is describing the dragon, the serpent, the devil himself. The two final verses lead us to understand even more in Job 41, verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. There he is. He's the devil. He's Satan. He's our greatest foe. He is the source of all evil in this place. Abaddon, the accuser, our adversary, the first and the king of pride. And this sets forth the second point that I want to make to you guys today. This means that there's a necessity of evil. God created this creature, and this creature fell from his high and lofty position, and now he is accusing the whole world. And this necessity of evil helps us understand this. We first saw the enormity of evil, now the necessity of evil. Evil illustrates man's ability and God's necessity. That's why we have to have evil in our world, because without it, we would never search for God. Yes, evil does exist, Job, and, and, and it is necessary because evil in all of its manifestations and man's inability to conquer it, we see the absolute power of God and our absolute need for him. If you remove all evil tomorrow, you will remove all need for God. God is saying this is an impossibility for man, and you don't. And I don't want to live in a world where there is no need for God. We talked about that world last week, remember? God came into our world. He did perfect works. And the result of that is that evil men killed him. A world where there is no need for God, logically, intellectually, and theologically, is a fallacy. It can't happen, and it would not be a world in which we'd want to live or we couldn't live. Evil points us to God, and all of history points towards that truth. How? Tragedy and comedy. Tragedy and comedy. It was the medieval poet Dante that gave us tragedy and comedy. I don't know how much you know about ancient literature, but tragedy and comedy is something that you're already familiar with. I'll just read what Scott Christensen writes in his book, What About Evil? Listen to these words about Tragedy and comedy. According to the great medieval poet Dante, a tragedy is a story that begins with joy and ends with pain. That's a tragedy. A comedy begins in pain and ends with joy. That's a comedy. We would call that good news, right? Bad news and good news. Tragedy and comedy. Our souls indeed long for the good outcome of a comedy, and we dread the painful outcome of a tragedy. But even in the tragedy, we are encouraged to long even more for the ending of the comedy. Translation, it's in the evil we long for the good even more. 
Of course, we don't celebrate evil. We would never do that. But Christensen goes on to say, instead, tragedy produces grieving over the good that ought to have triumphed. It makes it more clear in our vision when we see tragedy, what good is and what ought ought to be. In other words, we, we, we grieve over the good that ought to have triumphed, yet it fell short because of the stories, flawed, tragic heroes who were overcome by the flaws and the crises as they faced. Even when a show or a movie that you go to see ends on a low note, it makes us long for the good. When tragedy evokes tears or even loathing or anger, right? It highlights the deeper yearning for the joyous resolution that is often so rare in actual life. So even thoughtful tragedy processes a cathartic effect on the human being. Comedies is always the ideal situation to which tragedy points. In other words, evil only points us all the more to the good. Every culture, every civilization, and people that have ever existed share this truth about evil and comedy and tragedy. All one has to do is look at every story of every civilization, and all of it has this pattern. John Bars, in his book called Echoes of Eden, calls it this phenomena. He says in the book, uh, wrote by the same name, he says, First, there are memories in religion, myths, and legends. All peoples have memories preserved in religions and in their legends, myths, and fairy stories of the original truths about the human situation. Remember the three little pigs and the big bad wolf? We were glad that third pig built his house. What did he build it out of? Straw or bricks, right? We longed for that pig to succeed, didn't we? These stories, if you study this just one iota, you'll see this from the beginning of time, and I'm going to show you why. He says they're in our myths, our legends, our fairy stories of the original truths about the human situation. All over the world, he says, we find remnants of belief in one great God behind all the gods of nature. All over the world, there is a sense that our present life in this world is one of having lost our way from the original dwelling place, a good place that was better and more beautiful than the place in which people now live. All over the world, there is the knowledge that our present condition is one of alienation and rebellion, that there is brokenness and tragedy in all of human life. All over the world, he says, there is a longing for this brokenness to be set right, and there is hope for a redeemer. Does that sound like our movies? Does that sound like every TV show? All of our art, all of our song, all of it points to that redemption and our one day conquering evil. How does this happen? How is the center of all those stories we tell, the books we read, the hero that rides in and saves the day? How does that happen? Well, that leads us to the truth about evil. The truth about evil is that it is intimately man's story. Where is it that we see the dragon that Job is telling about? Where is it that we see the good and the bad taking place? Everybody turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. There's something most amazing here. I hope you see it with me this morning. Everybody turn. This is where the dragon is. This is where the comedy and the tragedy are taking place. This is where evil begins in this world for us. And it started in the garden, the garden of God, the garden of Eden. It's, it's God's greatest comedy and man's greatest tragedy. Right within chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. And it is the genesis of evil in this place. And it's why we are in the throes in every, all of our art, all of our literature. 
So who do we find there in the garden? Well, let's just read these words. Chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. In fact, Scripture would tell us if we go back to Isaiah and to Ezekiel, and we can do that, 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 uh, that Satan, that the dragon that's portrayed from Job, Job chapter 42 was the first of God's creatures and he was the highest order of all of God's creatures and being in that position he thought himself more beautiful than God and placed himself above God, right? You guys know the story about Satan and what did God do? He kicked him and the angels that would follow him out of heaven and here we see him bringing his tragedy to man. So here's our dragon. Here's our antagonist. And he says to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that's in the midst of the garden. You shouldn't even touch it, or lest you do, you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Do you see it here? Creation is perfect. The good is there. <laughs> it's all comedy up until this point, but Satan is there to make it a tragedy. It's all comedy to this point. God has created a perfect place for Adam and Eve. And here we have, the. not only do we have the dragon from Job chapter 42, but we've got the first man, Adam, who would be tested and his wife, Eve. Oh, but brothers and sisters, there's a hero ready to ride in on this story. Look at what happens when Satan tempts these two. Verse 3, again with me. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing what? Good and evil. What'd they do, guys? We all know the end of this story, don't we? There's a sweet tension here. If you never heard the story, you'd kind of wonder what they do, but because you've lived the story, however many years you've been alive, and because all of history points to what this first man has done, you understand why evil's in the world. But let me tell you this. The first Adam failed. The second Adam won't fail. Huh? The first Adam fell and he plunged us all so that we all know what evil is. But beloved, here's the point. The reason evil still exists today is because we've all made that same choice to choose evil over God's word. God had left his word there and there's a great sermon here that is just waiting to be preached but I'm so far out of time this morning is that men should follow God's word and stay away from evil but they don't. They choose, often they choose to put themselves above and they partake of the fruit. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And who was standing there with her? Who was the one charged with keeping her away from evil in the beginning? Her husband was there and he ate too. Man continues to choose evil. Just look at the pro-murder abortion lobby that's all around us today. And they've only gotten hints about their, their sacrament, their highest sacrament of dismembering babies in the womb being overturned. Yet they decry, they decry for justice in this area. 
It's a motley, restless crew they are, and I'm not going to harp on culture too much this morning, but I thought this highlighted it well, that if we believe evil could ever stop, we need to look at people like this. They're the one telling you that they can institute justice. They're the ones telling you that they can bring peace. Don't buy it. You can't overcome it without God. Because we set up this, we set up this tragedy. Man has eaten of the fruit and the promise was in the day of you eat it that you will surely die. But we got two points left. We need to defeat evil. And we see the flaming defeat of evil right there in the Garden of Eden in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God knew that man was going to choose to disobey him. God knew that man would choose tragedy over comedy. So God said... <clears throat> The Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On, the be on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He's fallen far from his former position, hasn't he? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There in this story is the inklings of the hero that would come riding in to the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins. You see, Jesus pays on the, cross of, on the cross. Jesus pays our penalty for sin. Jesus breaks the power of sin. That's the defeat of evil. But one day there will be the end of evil. Jesus pays our penalty. He breaks the power of sin. He makes it so that basically we're back in the same standing Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Adam in the Garden of Eden was able to not sin, was able to sin. Fallen man is not able to not sin. Redeemed man is able to not sin and able to sin. But glorified man will not be able to sin. Christ, Christ fully destroys evil. Job learned that God is holy, righteous, and good. His knowledge of himself and of the world in which he lived, which to us doesn't seem fair at times, I agree, was in its entirely wrapped up in his creator. For Job to know himself and his world, he had to know his creator. Look at Job's final response, and I think it's very instructive. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, just you read these words. Job was totally at the end of who he was and totally dependent on God. And that's how we need to be in the evil in our life, to be totally dependent <clears throat> on the one who's come to save us, and that is Jesus Christ, that, that protagonist that we see in the Garden of Eden, even early on, and we understand that the, all of the narrative of all the whole world runs off of that truth that happened in the Garden of Eden. See what Job said there in the first six verses of Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful of me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, right? If I could finish that for Job. My eyes have seen your majesty. My eyes have seen your power. My eyes have seen your mercy. My eyes have seen your sovereignty. Even though I had to go through this suffering for me to be able to see who you are, thank you for showing me who you are. 
That's why we need the tragedy, because it's turning us to see the one who's bigger than our tragedy. I know that there's people here this morning who've been hurt, who have been affected deeply, mourning and grieving over the evil that's been performed against them in their lives. And I know there's people here that have, that have committed evil. We all have to some level. But I also know that in the garden, there was that king, that promise, that hope, that redeemer that was coming some, some, sometime later in history that would die on the cross to restore us back to God. And I know that sin's penalty's been paid and your penalty can be paid for all the evil that you committed and you can forgive those who have committed evil against you because it breaks the power of sin. He pays the penalty of sin and he breaks the power of sin. But here's the good part, brothers and sisters. Here's the part that we rejoice over. Here's the part where we, where we know that it's going to end in comedy. One day he will obliterate the presence of sin, will be no more. Let me read about that day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first, the, the tragedy, right? The first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Does it sound like where this all started out in the Garden of Eden as God walked with them in the cool of the evening and they had no shame and they could be there in that sweet fellowship with their Savior. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for those things are all passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, those are, that's the evil, right? As for all the evil, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Evil's gone. The presence of sin is no more. Hallelujah. Praise God. My prayer is for you, that you know that Redeemer, that you seek him for everything, that you see in this world that he is your only hope, for he is. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this morning, I just thank you for your word. I pray every day, Father, that my inability to deliver it does not, I'm thankful for this, does not stop your Spirit's work in delivering it to the hearts of your people. Father, you've written this story, you've written it in the lives that are here sitting before us today, and there's not one of us who doesn't understand the hope of this Redeemer that you've sent. God's saving us through God dying for us. Jesus on the cross, that he came from heaven, that he lived the life we couldn't, he he didn't make those choices. He never committed evil, and he was able to stand in our place and take all of our sin and our punishment. Father, thank you for destroying evil on the cross that day. Thank you.
for building a hope in us and continuing to build that hope as we live in this place so that we can minister to others and give them the hope that you've given us. My prayer for each one of these beloved saints that sit here today is they understand that hope in Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray.